My name is Lindsay Blackburn. I serve in King's Cross Kids on Sunday mornings. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. Not, um, I'm Chip. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are going to be in Exodus 14. If you want to grab a Bible and turn to Exodus 14. First of all, uh, Pastor Josh is up at Myrtle, in Myrtle Beach preaching. Uh, we're part of a church planning network called Summit Collaborative. Josh is up preaching for one of our Summit Collaborative sister churches this morning. And so you can be in prayer for him um, as he travels up there and making some time off. Um, so please be in prayer for Josh. And also, um, if you are, uh, and as I suspect that you are, intensely following the competition of the King's Cross Bracket Fest Challenge um, through the men's NCAA tournament, uh, I'll just give you a quick update through yesterday's games. Um, there's a tie for first between Greg Slade and someone named Josh Buckets. I don't know which of our Joshes that is. We have a handful of them. And so uh, I, I tried my best to drill down and determine who it is. I don't have any idea. Um, uh, it closely followed uh, nipping at their heels by Noah's mom. And I have um, a little more of an indication of who Noah's mom might be. But um, Okay, Exodus 14. Um, there's a really great gift bag of books. Um, some of you missed out on an opportunity to do that, but um, it'll, it'll be okay. We'll give away books right after Kentucky wins the championship. Exodus 14. That's somewhere in the Bible. I don't know where. Um, <laughs> Exodus uh, is a book that is all about God saving his people. This is what the, the book is about. If, if you're following along in the story at the beginning of the Bible, um, the, the problem in the world is identified as sin. And then the solution to that problem is given as God makes covenant promises to redeem a covenant people through whom he will bless the whole world. And then you get into the book of Exodus and you begin to see what that salvation looks like. What is it going to look like when God saves his people. Now, the idea of being saved is one that permeates the Bible. But I wonder sometimes if it seems foreign to us as 21st century Westerners. I think the idea of being saved, it implies a need, right? That there's some dire circumstance from which you can't extract yourself, and therefore you need someone else to come in from the outside and to save you, I'll be honest with you, I just think there are a lot of us that don't feel that way. We live in a pretty nice city, in a pretty nice country, in a pretty nice time in human history, not that it doesn't have its problems, but you know, in the grand scheme of everywhere in the world you could have lived at any time, like it's a pretty good one, God chose to put you here. And so I just know that, like for example, some of you are young, your, your whole life is in front of you. Everything seems possible. You don't feel like you need saving because you're just getting going. Like things haven't really even gotten all that bad for you yet. Save from what? Some of you aren't young, and, and because you're not young, you've gotten to a place of relative affluence. You've worked hard. you paid your dues. You, you don't feel like you really need saving from anything because you've achieved a level of 
stability and success that's allowed you to mitigate or maybe even in some cases eliminate kind of the major pitfalls that often people can fall into in life. Some of you are retired and it doesn't feel to you like you need saving because you feel like, man, I made it through. I, I, I raised a family, I navigated a career, I, I endured, I overcame some things and I'm on the other side. And so your challenge with a text like this for some of you is that you won't see yourself as someone who needs it. Now, that's not all of you. Some of you desperately feel like you need saving. Maybe there's some cycle of self-destructive behavior in your life that you hate. But you just kind of constantly find yourself repeating it. Or maybe you feel like you need saving from some financial hole that you dug and you just can't seem to find a way out of it. Or you've received some diagnosis and it has totally rocked you to the core of who you are. Or maybe you feel like you need saving from the downward spiral of a failing relationship that's threatening everything that you've kind of constructed about your life. And your challenge is that you're going to get to a text like this and you're going to struggle to believe that either God can or God will actually help you and so you feel like I, you have to save you if something's going to change it's really up to you and so as we track our way through the story the problem of sin maybe to you is straightforward enough yes and amen okay and we got to the covenant promises of god and you know those were comforting perhaps not particularly personally challenging to you but now in chapter three of the story the rubber is going to start hitting the proverbial road because now we're going to start having some heavy lifting to do because when it gets to this idea of salvation in the bible there's no gray area you are either saved or you are not the imagery that we're going to find in exodus 14 is one of crossing over crossing over from one side of the red sea to the other, from slavery to freedom, from being under a death sentence to finding life, from being lost in the language of the New Testament to being saved. And so the biblical narrative begins to press in on us and have us ask questions like, do I need to be saved? And if so, from what? And how is that going to happen? Like, what's the means by which I can be saved? And perhaps most importantly, who's going to do that? If I can't save myself, then who is able to save? Saved from what? How and by whom? Exodus 14 answers those questions. Let's, let's look at them together. As Exodus 13 closes... What we're told is that the Israelites couldn't take the direct route to the promised land. If you're following along in the devotional plan, you read this this week. But they can't, they can't take the direct route, which in modern terms would have been like across the Suez Canal and the Sinai Peninsula and up towards the Gaza Strip. They couldn't go that way because there's a war in Philistia. And so they have to take the long way around, which is kind of like south through Egypt and over into modern Saudi Arabia and like back up through Iraq and down into Syria. And so to do that, that meant at some point after they started going south, they were going to have to cross over the Red Sea to the east. Now, the Lord is with them 
chapter 13 says he's leading them in a pillar of cloud by day and a column or a pillar of fire by night. And as chapter 14 opens, that pillar has stopped and the Lord tells Moses to have the people camp by the sea. And then he warns him. He says, Pharaoh's about to change his mind. He let you go. He's going to change his mind and start pursuing you. But when he does, I'm going to triumph over him and I'm going to get glory from that. Exodus 14, we'll pick it up at verse 5. When the king of Egypt, <clears throat> excuse me, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, What is this we've done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made his he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. And he overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. So first question from what does God save us? And the answer we get is that God saves us from bondage. God saves us from bondage. In the case of the Israelites, they are literally slaves in Egypt. God saved them from it. Now, to my knowledge, none of you are literal slaves. If you are Come find me after the service and we will get you out. But I don't know that anyone is. Everybody, however, whether you are literally in bondage or not, everybody serves someone or something. Bob Dylan even sang that. Right? He said, it might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. The Bible and Bob Dylan agree. Probably true. Fair? question is, <laughs> yes it is, the question is, who or what do you serve? Is everybody serving something? Perhaps for some of you it's professional achievement. Your schedule, your emotions, your dreams, your sense of identity, all of your relationships, they're all tied directly to what it is that you do. Maybe for some of you it's parenting. And so every decision you make, whether it's about your money or your weekend schedule or even your own adult friendships, they're all kind of centered around, they orbit around the sun of your children. Maybe for some of you, it's your appearance. And you're either trying to, to get to or to hold on to some certain look. And it drives your sleep schedule and your budget and what and when you eat and what you read and like your whole life is structured around maintaining or achieving some physical look. For some of you, and I think especially where we live, like a lot of us are in bondage to us. Like you just serve you. And so you, you promote you online. You never fully commit to anything because you need to make sure that you maintain your freedom. And so you don't want to bind yourself to anything too far out on the calendar. You, 
You hear me talk about sacrificial generosity. You can't do that because if you do that, that means less for you. And so you're in bondage to, to you. Now, are any of those things inherently evil? Like Pharaoh is clearly evil. He's enslaving, you know, maybe 2 million Israelites. The Bible says 600,000 men plus women and children. No, they're not. There's absolutely nothing wrong with doing great things vocationally or with working hard to be a godly parent. We just had a gospel-centered parenting class, yes, and amen. There's absolutely nothing wrong with stewarding your body well and trying to take care of yourself or in, in, in practicing intentional self-care and making sure that you have appropriate margins in your life and you get some time. Those are all good things. Those are all good things. They're not God things. And here's how you know when they make the jump from being healthy, good gifts from God to being disordered slave masters that have taken the place of God in your heart and in your mind. Here's how you know when that jumps happened. Do they pursue you if you try to leave them behind? Do they demand to be attended to, to be nurtured? to be served. Because that's what the Egyptians do in verses 8 and 9. Right? They, they pursue... Israel is objectively freed. Pharaoh had said, you can go. You're no longer slaves. You are free objectively. They had been saved by God, set free by Pharaoh, officially, legally, but their old slave master is still pursuing them. And so in our lives, maybe you hit a professional ceiling or you lose a job or, or you don't get recognized when one of your peers does. And all of a sudden you are gripped by, you're haunted by this fear of becoming irrelevant or unseen or heaven forbid, average in your career. And now it's got your heart. Or maybe, maybe your child rebels or struggles, or, or get some diagnosis, and you get angry, or anxious, not, not because of you're concerned about what may happen to them, but because you know how people are going to look at you. And now this idol of parenting is running after you to enslave you again to its demands. Or maybe you just find yourself unable to resist the the siren song of the bathroom scale or the wine fridge or whatever it is you have to do to get more likes on social media because there are some things that you just have to do to feel normal, to, for you to feel like you have peace, for you to feel like you're you, this, this slave master has to be served. You're in bondage. You're in bondage. See, the gospel says that if you are in Christ, or if you will come to a place of repentance and faith in Christ, then he frees you from, he saves you from your bondage to all those old slave masters. And so your identity isn't in your job or your family or your body or your stuff. It's in him. 
2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're not that identity anymore. You're a new identity. If you're in Christ, your future is secured by not the government or the stock market or your education, but him. He holds you in his hand. He determines the path that you walk. I, I give them, John 10, 28, I give them eternal life that they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Their future is secure with me. If you're in Christ, your past, it isn't defined by your greatest mistake or by missed opportunities or even by your greatest achievement. Like your past is defined because you've been redeemed and forgiven and restored by him. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. You see? This is not a circumstantial thing. It's a matter of the heart. Have you been objectively freed? And, and do, you, do you live that way? Or are you constantly being pursued by this old slave master that still has you in bondage? Because if you are in Christ, you have been saved from bondage to all those things. You've been freed from your natural bent towards taking good things, good gifts of God, and making them into God things. Making them into idolatrous slave masters that grip your heart and hold your life in bondage. But just like the Israelites, you're going to be pursued by them. They don't just magically go away when you come up out of the baptismal waters. That doesn't have, they, they don't just magically disappear because you have your devotional that morning. And so when you're pursued by them, when those old desires and those old fears and those old identities, if they are rooted in anything other than Christ, when they come roaring back after you, you have to remind yourself of truths in the scripture like Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. 1 Corinthians 7 is another place. Paul says, if you come to Christ, sorry, if you come to Christ and you're already a literal slave, a bondservant, understand that you've been freed. But if you're someone who is already free and you come to Christ, understand that you're a servant to him. Paul says, you don't serve anybody when you come to faith except Christ, because God saves us from bondage of serving, of being controlled by or emotionally, mentally, physically, financially, spiritually enslaved to any person, thing, or idea other than Jesus. This is what we're saved from. God saves us from bondage. Second question, how? How are we saved? And the answer is God saves us by grace. By grace. Pick back up at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, 
The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you when we were in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians and to die than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. What does Israel have to do to get themselves out of this? To be freed from this imminent death threat of the Egyptians pinning them against the sea, of their old slave master's pursuit of them to try to pull them back into bondage. What do they have to do? They have to trust God. That's it. They don't do anything to overcome their old slave masters. They don't do anything in the fight itself. God saves them by grace. And friends, he saves us by grace. By grace alone. And understand in the context of, of reading this, when you get to Moses in verse 14... It's not like a comforting parental, bless your heart moment. Okay, so don't hear verse 14 as Moses saying, Oh, the Lord will fight for you. Dear ones, you have only to be silent. That, that is not the tone. In his commentary on this passage, Peter Enns writes this. He says, quote, It is in this context of the Israelites' faithlessness in light of what God has done. Remember, all the plagues just happened last week, right? Yesterday, he killed all the firstborn in Egypt, and all the Egyptians gave them all their gold, and, all the, and like they walked out. In light of what God has done, that we should understand verse 14. This is a terse, impatient command on Moses' part, ends continues. In Hebrew, the last part of the verse is best translated as, you be quiet, or better yet, shut up. This is no word of comfort, but an angry denouncement of Israel's paper-thin faith. End quote. They fear greatly. They cry out to the Lord with, frankly, what are angry accusations. And Moses says, hush, God's got it. Sit down and watch what he's about to do. Friends, hear me, everything God is calling you to do, he's calling you to do in response to his grace, not so that you can earn it and save yourself. All the commands of those who would follow Christ come after. The Ten Commandments are next week. Next week, salvation comes First, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. By grace, you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. For 
We are His workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand. First comes the salvation by grace, then come the good works that we do. God saves us by His grace. And then He calls us to a life of godliness and good works. You with me? No. Okay. <laughs> you all a little slow this morning. You're up late watching basketball. I get it. Can I tell you, um, like just in all transparency, that I think a lot of times I find myself behaving like the Israelites in Exodus 14. I believe that God has saved me by the blood of the Lamb as He did them last week in Exodus 12. But now, having been saved, I often rely on me. Like, honestly, the power of God sometimes becomes an afterthought to me, like it's the last resort rather than the first. And so I know that Jesus saved me back then, and I know that I'm going to be with him one day when he either returns or calls me home. But sometimes in these days, in this life that I'm living right now, sometimes what I realize is that my fears... And my anxiety and my restlessness to be productive, what they reveal very often is a heart that just relies an awful lot on Chip, an awful lot on me. That's bondage. Christ has set me free from that. He's not intending me to walk in that. And he's done so by his grace. If... I have trusted him for eternal life. Should I not also trust him for this life? Should you not? If you've come to a place of repentance and faith in Christ. Friends, we are not only freed by grace. We're not only saved by grace. We are a people who live by grace. But the reality is that our hearts... Our hearts know, like our minds scream at us, somebody has to do something. Like, surely the point of Exodus 14 is not God saying through the Holy Spirit and Moses, oh honey, um, you just got to let go and let God. That, that is not a Bible verse. Surely, there, surely somebody has to do something. So we are... Saved from bondage by grace. But who accomplishes that? Who or what is the mechanism by which the grace of God comes to us, takes us by the hand, and crosses us over from bondage to freedom in Christ? From death to life. Look back at verse 15 and 16. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Was Moses crying out to the Lord in verse 10? Not a trick question. Was Moses crying out against the Lord? No. The Israelites were. Hold on to that. 
Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Skip down to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back. Hold on to that in your other hand. By a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Skip down to verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, verse 30, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. The Israelites go through the sea. The Egyptians die in it. What's the difference between the two? Don't you think that, like, probably some of the Israelites weren't very good neighbors? They, like, kicked dogs and stole people's mules from the pyramid parking lot. Like, don't you think some of the Israelites probably got drunk and cheated on their wife? Don't you think some of the Egyptians were probably pretty good people? There is some blue-collar, hard-working soldiers are trying to serve their country, provide for their family, or just in the armed forces. Like, don't you think that some of the Egyptians were probably like really nice to the Israelites that they worked alongside of? They always recycled. They paid their taxes. They mentored kids down at Ramsey's High School. What's the difference in the two? Israel had a mediator. Israel had a mediator. Remember in verse 10? The people cry out to God. In verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Then in verse 21, it says, Moses stretched out his staff over the sea and the Lord drove the waters back. Again, in verse 27, Moses stretches his hand out over the sea, and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of it. So in Moses, you have a man who is so identified with his people that their sin is attributed to him. And a man who is so identified with God that God works through him to save a people. Our third question was, through whom does God save his people?
by grace? And the answer is, God saves us through the work of a mediator. He saves us through the work of a mediator. Last week we said God saves us through the blood of a substitute. And this week God reveals that he's going to save us through the work of a mediator. Friends, the gospel does not call you to have faith in grace. It calls you to have faith in Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The writer of Hebrews will call him the mediator of a new covenant. In Jesus, we get someone who is so identified with you that your sin is attributed to him. As he goes to the cross and bears the weight and the burden, pays the price for your sin in your place as your substitute. And someone who is so identified with God the Father because he is, in fact, God the Son, that God works through him to save you from your bondage to sin and its consequences and its pursuit of you by his grace alone. In Jesus, we have the fulfillment of the fullness of the mediator and the mediatorial work that God first began to reveal to us through his servant Moses in Exodus 14. The question is, will you trust him? Or is your heart in the place where some of the Israelites' heart was, where you would rather just stay back in bondage where at least you knew what to expect. And you'd rather live and die there than have to walk out into the unknown of life with Christ and following him, knowing not what lies ahead. Will you risk the unknown of not relying on yourself or the systems of the world that you've come to rely on, but on him, on God and his mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are um, prone to wander as the song says. More than that, they are condemned to being pursued by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And yet, those of us who've come to a place of repentance and faith, who've turned from those things and turned to Christ, we know objectively that you freed us from that. We know that. But our hearts sometimes struggle. Will you help us? Will you help us to remember that you have saved us through the work of Christ, not our work, that we might live by that same grace, leaning on that same mediator, not just for eternal life, but for this life. It's in his name we pray. Amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.